Hello and welcome to the Talking Food with Bid Food podcast. I'm Joe Anglis and on the menu for this episode we'll be talking about what you can do to create more sustainable and carbon friendly menus. Creating sustainable practices in food service is absolutely vital. In fact, a recent survey we did for our annual food and drink trends report said that sustainability is top of the agenda for both operators and consumers. So to help us on the topic, I'm grateful that later on in this episode, we'll be joined by two fantastic guests from Prince's. They are Paul Williams, Global Head of Environmental and Social Sustainability, and Simon Stokes, who is a senior development chef there. A key part of Prince's brand is about how they saw seafood responsibly. So I think with this being such a big topic in recent times, I'm excited to hear all the advice that they have to share. Before they join us, I'm really happy to be joined by Bid Foods Head of Sustainability and Change, Julie Oust, who is going to be my co-host for the episode. Julie, I know you've been on as a guest several times before, but welcome to co-hosting for the first time. Thanks, Joe. I hope I don't let you down. Before the guys from Prince's join us, in in case anyone hasn't listened to a podcast episode you've been on before, can you share with the listeners a bit of an overview of your role and the brilliant work you've been doing? Yeah, definitely. So I drive and oversee the sustainability programme at Bidfood. Um, I've been talking to quite a lot of customers about what a climate friendly menu actually means, the pros and cons of carbon labelling, a lot of which was covered in a blog we produced last week. So I won't repeat myself, but basically it's a hot topic with knowledge aware and awareness growing all the time. And I'm looking forward to what Paul and Simon have to say about it. That's great. Thanks, Julie. So without any further delay, let's bring our guests onto the podcast. Welcome back. I'm excited to say that we're now joined by Paul and Simon. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Joe. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having us. And welcome, Simon. Hi, everyone. You okay? All good. Thank you very much. So, Paul, I'll start with you. It'd be really great to hear about Prince's sustainability strategy and the areas that you focus on. So, as the Global Head of Environmental and Social Sustainability at Prince's, how important is sustainability to your business and what's your vision in this area? Sure, thanks, Joe. I think for us at Prince's, sustainability is really a fundamental component of our business strategy now and in the future. Um, We've got huge amounts of uh, plans to grow in terms of what the product range that we offer, how can we support customers and consumers, but we also recognise that we must do that sustainably by minimising our impact on the environment, but also having a positive impact on the, the many hundreds and thousands of suppliers within our value chain. Just very top line, um, we could probably spend 20 minutes just on our sustainability journey, but we've probably got five key areas that we're focusing on, um, which are sustainable sourcing of raw materials, energy and carbon, and the path to net zero, which you fantastically covered in your first podcast. We're also looking at things like the impact of packaging and how do we become more circular, but also how do we reduce food waste? And importantly, how do we ensure that all of the workers in our supply chain can fulfil their objectives and aims and making sure that human rights are respected throughout our global value chain. Important for us as well, so it's not just Princes in isolation, we partner with a number of organisations, so we are a member of the Ethical Trading Initiative, um, ETI, the Food Network for Ethical Trade, FNET, and a number of other organisations really to try and drive improvement within our own operations, but also to hear, listen and learn from others. Um, And it's really important that we engage with our supply base who are ultimately fundamental in terms of delivering our sustainability strategy. We also recognise, as you mentioned in your introduction, so consumers and customers, they want to know more about sustainable food. 
they want to understand what is their impact of their purchasing practices. So we take a responsibility in trying to make sure that we make that really easy or as easy as possible for consumers and customers to make the, the best informed decisions. Thanks, Paul. Um, and what sort of challenges and opportunities are you seeing as you put that strategy into practice? Gosh, Julie, well, I wasn't great until I started my role in sustainability. So if I, uh, I start with the challenges and then move on to the opportunities, I think for me, the challenges um, include the, sort of the focus on carbon. And I often refer to it internally as the carbon tunnel. And that's very much around, you know, the expectation that, um, you know, consumers, customers may just focus on carbon emissions and the talk about net zero. When actually we know the huge amount of environmental impacts and climate change has on, for example, human rights but also the importance of not just focusing on carbon and isolation. So how do we look at biodiversity loss, nature, water stewardship, and inequality more broadly? So I think for me, the sort of the carbon focus is, is one area of sustainability, which is getting lots of noise, lots of attraction. I think the biggest challenge for me is almost the, the offsetting of carbon and the sort of the Wild West um, in terms of the regulation, the standardization of, of how do we as organizations and our supply chain have reliance and credibility and trust in terms of our um, offsetting plans in the future. I think the other ones for me in terms of challenges are around consistency of measurement. So how do we find the right routes to collaborate? So for example, um, we supply lots of salmon, canned salmon in the UK and Europe, but irrespective of that, we have lots of challenges around how do we use the same metrics for carbon footprinting? Are we using the same figure? If we upload that onto one particular customer, questionnaire and database, how do we make sure that that's not double counted? There's also the challenge, um, again, around how do we quantify and value nature? So there's, um, you know, biodiversity losses, a massive risk within all of our operations in the food industry as a whole. But how do we really quantify and make sure that the, the boards that we work with, the finance teams really try and quantify and understand the impact of nature and the importance within our business? The third challenge, I think, is around consumer engagement. So we know that um, in the sustainability bubble, it's a bit of an echo chamber sometimes, and we nearly really need to make sure that we talk to consumers in a way that they can understand, a way that they can engage and make those really informed um, procurements and purchasing decisions. Uh, fourth for us as an organisation, one that we've really taken to heart is how do we embed this? So it's not just about sustainability being the the corporate relations team, the CSR team, as was in the in the back of, you know in the olden days, a, a department down the corridor which nobody interacts with on a regular basis. But actually, how do we embed sustainability within the group, but also within our supply chain? So we've taken lots of initiatives. Um, so for example, all of our buyers undertake the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply SIPs ethics mark training, again, to make sure that they are fully au fait and um, understood the challenges around their procurement role um, and how sustainable, responsible procurement can play a massive part in supporting our sustainability vision. We also make sure that we have teams within our working groups on sustainability that reflect colleagues from sales, from technical, legal, um, commercial, again, to really make sure that this isn't just a one team approach. Um, and then finally, I think for me, it's around supplier engagement. So we know that the suppliers and partners that we work with globally, they're really key to implementing and resolving some of these huge sustainability challenges. And we know that for them, they're on different stages of maturity, different stages on their journey. Um, so we really need to play a role in terms of helping, supporting and educating those suppliers, because ultimately without them, we won't get the visibility in terms of what's going on the help and support that they need, but also the ideas and opportunities that they can come to us with. So there's some of the challenges very top line. 
Moving on to some of the more positive opportunities around sustainability strategy, um, I think for us it's about the opportunity to see the next generation of customers and consumers. So it's, it's great to see now that there'll be some sort of a GCSE announced in the UK around sustainability. I think it's going to be launched in a couple of years time. But, you know, driving that on the agenda of uh, the future workforce, the future consumers and customers is really going to make sure that more and more people are asking the right questions around where and how food is sourced and ensuring that companies and brands can demonstrate the highest ethical and social standards. Um, I think as well, you know, the opportunity for us is about how do we look at our risk assessments on environmental sustainability and overlay those with human rights concerns. Again, I think speaking to a number of colleagues in, in other organisations, there's a, a temptation to see environment and social challenges as, as separate silos. And I think actually the, the real opportunity comes when you can combine those two together. Um, the opportunity, again, as well for us, is about transparency. So we talked earlier about the challenge about how do we engage and make sure that consumers are aware of, of their impact on purchasing practices. Well, for us, we've, we've played a massive role in terms of trying to build transparency. So simple things like launching a QR, a quick response code on, on pack of our Napolina tomatoes or on our tuna brand enables consumers who are interested to scan the QR code and find out more about the responsible sourcing of products. And, you know, when you think back to 10 years ago, the Horsegate uh, food scandal, we know that transparency builds trust, it builds resilience and it helps to embed um, sustainability more broadly. So they're very much some of the opportunities, I think, um, that we see going forward. That's really, really interesting, Paul. Thank you. And I guess as a supplier into the food service market, how do you go about sourcing your products in the most sustainable way? So I think for us, it's about um, one of the examples probably in this area is around the work that we've done in Italian tomatoes over 10, 11 years now, where we are the third largest tomato producer in the world. We've got our own operations in Italy. And we've got a huge number of, of farms and growers that we work with in the south of Italy. So we've got a responsibility to make sure that we source responsibly and ethically. Um, and so the work that we've done over a number of years is about understanding what are the, the areas of improvement that we need to do. And that's not just for us at, at the sort of the factory, the processor level, where typically that's where the, the first step of ethical audit will take place. But actually engaging with growers, with farmers, uh, but also more importantly for us about taking that step to say, what can we do as an industry to engage with um, local agricultural unions, with non-governmental organisations to, to try and build that awareness and understanding? Again, just for some very brief context, we've got the issue of illegal gangmasters operating within Italy, um, very prevalent within the agricultural sector. And so we know the risks are huge, the prevalence, even though, you know, some customers may deem Italy to be a lower sourcing country. For us, it's absolutely one of the most important high risk countries, but also one of the opportunities, I think, to learn and improve. So whether that's on water stewardship, on looking at um, reducing the level of pesticide usage where we can, but also looking at alternatives. So, for example, irrigation platforms and how can we move away from the sort of reliance on plastic irrigation piping, as an example, just a few initiatives that we worked with. Um, so that's probably one example, really proud in terms of what we've achieved and we've won a few Oxfam awards and, and other awards um, for the work that we've done to support survivors of modern slavery in Italy and also now recognised as very much leading in this field. Not to say it's perfect in any way, but we recognise that, um, you know, there's a huge amount of learnings that we can share with other sectors, not just in canned tomatoes, but how can other people in the industry learn from some of the work that we've done within Italy? Thanks, Paul. Some really good examples there. 
Um, and in terms of advice for operators, what would you suggest that they look to when they're sourcing products, for example, fish and seafood from a sustainability perspective? We talked about how difficult it is for consumers to, to make those informed decisions. And I think this is where there's a role to play in some form of a, an eco on pack. Now, again, often a bit sceptical in terms of the number of volume of, of eco marks that can exist. But I think where there are those eco marks um, that have been in existence for many years, they're very well recognised by customers and consumers. They're the ones that we should get behind. And one example on fish that you mentioned is the Marine Stewardship Council, MSC. I think that's probably the most globally recognised standard in seafood sustainability. And again, when you think about what it means to be certified, there's basically the three assessment principles. So there's only fishing on healthy stocks. There's ensuring there's good management of stocks and uh, being fished for the long term. And finally, minimising the impacts on other species and the wider ecosystem. So for us, we, you know, we've used the MSC eco label for many years. Um, we are seeing a growth in terms of the number of fisheries that are certified. But unfortunately, we're seeing the, the decline in terms of products that are sold with the MSC logo. So I think, you know, there's a bit of a disparity, a bit of an opportunity there for, for retailers and consumers to look and demand the sort of the highest ethical um, eco marks when they exist. And again, we want to give the reassurance to customers and consumers that the fish that they're eating has been sourced sustainably and MSC certification for us is the best way to do that. And that's really why we've announced um, last year that we are going to source and sell only 100% of our UK Prince's branded tuna from MSC certified sustainable fisheries by the end of 2025. So a real step forward for us in terms of moving that, that forward. That's really great to hear. And then I guess, what about uh, carbon emissions? How far down the line are you in being able to measure the carbon impact across your range and then sharing that data with customers and consumers? Great question, Joe. So for us, you know, we know there's been a lot of focus, as I mentioned before, in terms of carbon emissions and achieving net zero. Um, we undertook our first carbon footprinting with a third party called Terrascope last year, and that was very much to focus on our scope three emissions. So um, last year, we'd already announced our plans to achieve net zero uh, by 2030 for scopes one and two. But again, for us, the elephant in the room almost was the 96% of our emissions at scope three. So within that, there's uh, the sort of the hotspots that we've identified by product and commodity group. Um, and then it's really trying to work with our suppliers to to understand, manage, monitor and then reduce those um, carbon emissions further. So within our work, we've also established a portal, Finish Good Suppliers, um, to look at factory metrics. And that will record as well year on year changes so that we can support them in, in terms of our scope three. And I think also for more advanced suppliers, we're also looking to support them. And that will be hopefully a condition of supply to us in the future that we can say and recognise and reward the progress that's being made by suppliers to encourage more and more to come to the party in terms of meeting our, our own net zero goals and ambitions. Just focusing on our own sort of green goal initiative within our own operations, um, in addition to announcing that carbon neutrality by 2030, we're also looking at how can we increase the level of energy generation, the water reduction usage and stewardship, but also generally food waste and waste uh, more generally, which we know is a huge topic and a huge opportunity for um, people in the food supply chain. That's great. Thank you, Paul. It's been really great to hear about the fantastic work you're already doing. 
So, Simon, it would be great now to hear about your perspective as a chef developing menus. So can you tell me a bit about the work that princes do to support their customers on sustainability and how you've supported them in shaping more sustainable menus? I guess it would also be great to hear any practical tips that you can share with our listeners too. Sure. I think, firstly, from my background as a chef, um, the two big practical tips that I would share are as follows. Um, The main thing to change, I think, is mindset. Um, don't always see a recipe as something that has to be followed 100%. Uh, don't be afraid to substitute an ingredient for something else similar that you've already got in your fridge. Um, for me, the beauty of food and cookery is that there is so much more freedom with it and you can kind of learn to experiment. Um, secondly, it's kind of about shopping smartly. Um, there's quite a lot of pressure on people to have kind of a big full fridge um, of fresh ingredients. And I think people need to think more like, about buying a mix of fresh, frozen and ambient foods and to tailor that with their own lifestyle. Um, We basically need to utilise our freezers and ambient food solutions as companions to fresh ingredients. Um, I think more than ever, consumers really want to understand what ingredients are going into their food and drink, um, where they originate from and if they're ethically and sustainably sourced. Um, There's definite expectation for manufacturers and operators such as ourselves to ensure that high ethical standards exist uh, within supply chains um, for the products they sell and consumers just aren't prepared to put up with brands or products that don't reflect their own values anymore. Um, This leads us on nicely um, to the work that we do at Prince's. Um, As we've just kind of touched upon there, we really know that consumers want to live more sustainably. Um, They're looking for brands to support in making more sustainable choices. Um, And this definitely seems to have accelerated in the wake of COVID. Um, As such, we're engaging with customers, consumers and suppliers on a broad range of sustainability areas. And good examples of these are, as Paul has already touched upon, Prince's Tuna. So there's a lot of transparency and sustainable sourcing, such as the MSC. Um, Napolina, again, transparency in our supply chain and the protection of human rights. Um, moving on to more product-based uh, products, we've got Cross and Blackwell Soup, um, which kind of really lean into British farmed ingredients, um, sustainable sourcing, and obviously through this reducing uh, carbon footprint. Um, Prince's brand have launched four plant-based can ready meals, So we've got vegetable curry, lentil bolognese, mixed bean chili and green Thai curry. Um, Alongside this, we've also launched kind of a sister brand called Plot9, which is a plant based only brand, um, which where we really want to kind of be a bit disruptive and exciting with flavours. And it really champions the veg as the hero of the dish. Um, There is definitely more that we can do to tie our corporate commitments into brands. And this is a definite focus for Prince's. Um, Some really good examples that I've been a part of are firstly um, food waste. So we've partnered with organisations such as RAP. Um, We supported their annual UK Food Waste Action Week um, to highlight the role that preventing food waste plays in tackling climate change. Uh, Last year, we did a really good um, campaign um, called Love Your Leftovers. Um, Now, this involved kind of creating recipes on video where we did two meals um, that I made using Prince's tuna as our kind of hero ingredient. Um, And then alongside this was ingredients that are commonly wasted um, and like leftovers that most people have in their fridges. Uh, We have really helped to take this initiative further in 2023 
um, obviously to help families waste less and save more. Um, and then kind of leading on from that, <clears throat> finally, a really big initiative for us is obviously food poverty. So since 2013, we've been partnered with Fair Share, who's the UK's leading charity tackling hunger and food waste. Um, their army of volunteers distribute surplus food and drink to over sort of 10,500 charities and community groups. Uh, the food they redistribute contributes towards like 132 million meals and saves the charity sector 18.5 million a year. Um, all food and drink that we cannot sell is donated to Fair Share, and many of our UK customers have a similar arrangement. Um, over 2021 and 22, we donated over 105,000 cases of food and drink um, to Fair Share, and we've also since then established a food bank partnership in Italy uh, for excess stock at our peer operation. Thank you, Simon. Some really good examples there. Um, and what are your thoughts on driving transparency, engagement and awareness amongst consumers in this space, please? I think more than ever, and kind of especially in my role, which is based around recipes and food uh, and food trends, I think it's more important than ever. And, and like we've kind of touched upon, um, consumers these days are incredibly savvy. Um, the the stories are in the press they're on social media around food sustainability you know and and the, the knowledge is there for everyone to have um and people want uh, sustainable products they want to know transparency they want to know where it's coming from and they want to know that the people that are producing them are treated fairly and um, so it's a great time it's a great time for food um, and it's a great time to be doing menus and things but a lot of my work Kind of when I'm looking at products and when I'm looking at menus, it's around using waste products and I guess kind of clever cookery hacks to really keep people interested and kind of hit the sustainability um, brief. I think if I may build on Simon's excellent points, you know, for us, it's really interesting. And, and internally, I tend to use the analogy of the transparency being sort of like the uh, the window into the restaurant kitchen. Or if you can ask the chef, who, you know, in the restaurant where the provenance of the food and where the foods come from, it's almost that if you can see into the kitchen, see how food's being prepared, you get that visibility, it gives you the trust, it gives you that reassurance. And I think for us at Prince's, that's really key in terms of the work that we're doing. It's it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. To give one very live example, we've done some work on 16 different canned fruit products, which is 12 raw materials. But actually, it's taken 18 months or so to get to the level of, well, how many workers, how many farms? And then you sort of into 6,000 farms and 12,000 workers to just make 16 finished canned products. So, you know, the scale of the challenge is huge. But I think for us, the importance in terms of building that transparency to develop trust and offer reassurance is really key. Again, in the in the climate of, you know, 10 years ago, the Horsegate food scandal is a very live opportunity that certainly rocked the food industry. The other thing for me just on transparency is, you know, the topic for today is about the carbon friendly menus. I would just encourage all listeners to, yes, definitely focus on the carbon footprint of menus, but don't forget to also ask and look for the details and ask those questions about other environmental aspects, whether it's on biodiversity and nature, the human rights and, and labour standards within the organisation and the supply chain, but even things like soil use and deforestation. These are also really key challenges and thoughts that we are bringing to life within our products at Prince's. That's really great to hear. Thank you. I think I'll wrap things up for both of you there. But before I do, thank you for joining us, Simon. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time, Paul. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Julie. So, Julie, that was really great to hear from Paul and Simon at Prince's, wasn't it? 
It was. I I live and breathe this stuff, so I'm always really encouraged to hear what other organisations are doing to drive progress. It's really good. Thank you, Paul and Simon. Absolutely. And I thought uh, now would be a really good time to discuss in a bit more detail a bit about what Bidfood are actually doing. So I know that we have committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2045, but how are Bidfood approaching that? And I guess, how much is it to do with reducing fleet emissions and energy, or how much is it to do with sourcing more sustainable ingredients for customers? Well, if you'd asked me this question two years ago, uh, which isn't really that long ago when you think about it, I genuinely wouldn't really have known where to prioritise our efforts. I was very aware that we needed to set out our ambition, but that was about all. Um, So fast forward two years, uh, we have our carbon footprint mapped out and... um, The quality of data behind that footprint is quite poor when it comes to scope three, uh, but it's very clear that our priority has to be decarbonisation of the food we buy alongside better data so that we understand it more. Um, As because, similar to Prince's, um, a staggering 92% 92 of our footprint is made up of the emissions associated with the food we buy. Um, And that is typical of a food business, by the way. Uh, And it just shows the scale to which food production um, drives climate change. Um, If you consider that we run over a thousand diesel trucks on UK roads and those emissions only account for about 4% of our whole carbon footprint, it just shows the extent to which we have to change the way we grow our food and also make different food choices to help the climate crisis. We absolutely can't do this alone, by the way. It's all about the journey from of food from farm to fork all that way all the actors in that chain have to be involved it's really important to recognize that and that's why it's lovely to have a supplier on the podcast talking about what they're doing and also I think it's really important to emphasize that we all have a part to play so if I after work go out to a restaurant for example and I choose a 10 ounce steak then my food choices as a consumer are also impacting the carbon footprint of the food industry Um, And that's why carbon labelling of food is slowly growing in prominence, because the industry is trying to nudge consumers towards lower um, impact options. Um, As food businesses, we can't do it all alone. Well, that's great. And those stats are quite mind blowing, really. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the industry groups you're involved with and the work you're doing with them to determine how carbon labelling can become a reality across the UK in hospitality. Absolutely. Happy to do so. But um, before I do, I do need to give you a bit of context. So we've talked a bit about carbon labelling. It's still fairly new and it's fairly poorly understood by the consumer. It varies massively in quality. So at the highest end of data quality, you've got some niche, usually plant based brands that use carbon labels as a selling point. These brands are likely to have carried out a full detailed life cycle analysis of their product. In other words, their information is high quality, bespoke, accurate, and it's a core part of the product's appeal because it usually scores a very uh, good green rating for uh, low climate impact. At the lowest end of data quality, you've got data tables of average greenhouse gas emissions for a typical product by category, for example, fish, meat, vegetable, etc., It's well researched, but it's an average of many averages. Um, So, for example, growing season, country of origin, farming methods, fertilizer use, transport methods and emissions, they're all variables, but an average has been taken. Um, Not to undermine the importance of those data tables, because they definitely have a part to play as they show huge differences between, for example, meat and dairy and lentils, etc., But there is a world of difference uh, between, for example, 
the worst case scenario, beef produced in South America fed on deforested soy and UK grass grown fed beef. So in this instance, all producers get tarred with the same brush and the industry can't currently provide the data that differentiates between suppliers that are active in this space and should be rewarded and those that are doing nothing. So that's why it's really important to get better data. So to get back to your question, and sorry, that was a bit long winded, but I felt it needed explaining. Uh, Bid food are involved in projects with RAP that aim to address many issues. So the project is trying to standardise and simplify the data asked from suppliers so that we're all asking the same question in the same format, agreeing principles on the scope of carbon measurement so that we, if you can forgive the pun, we can compare apples with apples. We're, we're crucially reaching out to suppliers to understand how difficult this is for them because they're all on different stages of the journey and we need to understand what needs to happen and what support they need to improve data across the industry. Um, and we do have a long way to go because not all suppliers are as evolved as, for example, princes are on this journey. And if I can just quote one example of how important the consistency of scope is, I recently mapped the carbon footprint of a can of baked beans uh, and it involved pages of calculations involving how the raw beans are shipped to the UK from Canada and the US, uh, the processing, the transport, but actually the biggest element of the carbon footprint is actually determined by whether the aluminium can is recycled or not. So the scope of measurement is really important. If we're going to compare carbon emissions of food from different suppliers, we need to know that they're including the same uh, areas of data, that they're using standard calculations, and this is what that project with RAP is also addressing. So we're part of the working group trying to drive progress in that area. That's really interesting and thanks for explaining the context of it all. I also know that you're working on a master's degree in sustainability so I guess what advice can you give our listeners from what you've learned both in your role at Bidfood and from the research you're doing for that that you can sort of relate to customers and how they can uh, reduce their carbon and achieve more sustainable menus? Absolutely. Um, so firstly, it's just not sustainable to eat meat in the volumes and the relative cheap price we pay for it, uh, as I keep explaining to my children who absolutely love uh, eating piles of meat. Uh, I say this in full knowledge of the fact that we sell meat. Uh, it's a key category for us, but I can't really kind of man maintain my integrity as a sustainability professional and pretend that it's OK to continue to meet every day in the volumes that we do typically in the UK. Uh, the planet just can't sustain it. And if we stand a chance of reducing carbon emissions, our food choices have to play a part in that. Um, so since learning about food production, I've massively reduced my in meat intake. I think I've adopted the mantra of eat less and eat better. I've widened out what my family eat. I feel far healthier for it. Uh, we've discovered loads of new foods and we genuinely um, have more interesting dinners and we're more conscious of what we eat. I'm not, I'm not saying we always get it right, but we've definitely improved in that area. Um, secondly, eating seasonal food, that's a no-brainer really, and I think most people understand about eating seasonal food being a lower impact. And thirdly, and I think Simon touched on this when he talked about consumers, it's about psychology as it is about anything else. Um, as a food industry, I feel really strongly that we need to make it attractive and appetising to consumers and easy to eat in a lower impact way. For most people eating out, it's a treat. They don't want to feel like they're denying themselves. So we, the onus is on us to develop appetising alternatives that tempt consumers away from meat, but perhaps without talking about it so much. 
I'm a great believer in change by stealth when it comes to changing deeply ingrained food habits. And it's been interesting to see examples in the news recently of food outlets changing things by stealth and not getting negative reaction to it because consumers haven't realised because the food's been really good quality. That's really great. And of course, best of luck with the rest of your studies. Thank you. Well, I'll wrap things up there then. But before I finish the episode, Julie, thank you so much for joining me as co-host for this one. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Joe. No problem at all. So it was really interesting to hear from our guests on how the industry is making encouraging changes to be more sustainable. If you're looking for more ideas and inspiration on this topic, we've hosted a number of recent episodes on sustainability and food service, which are definitely worth a listen. If you'd like to learn more information on BidFood's approach to sustainability, go to bidfood.co.uk forward slash sustainability. With loads of ideas and resources there, plus our annual sustainability report, which covers our achievements to date. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please make sure you follow us to ensure that you are the first to hear our latest episodes. Until next time, goodbye.